Chapter Twenty Four, Part Two of the Children of the Abbey. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Children of the Abbey by Regina Maria Roche. Chapter Twenty Four, Part Two. In the evening, Lady Greystock and Amanda received cards for dinner the next day at the Marquis of Roslyn's. Amanda made no objection to this invitation. Her father had often declared, if the Marchioness made an overture for an intimacy with his children, he would not reject it, as he always deemed family quarrels highly prejudicial to both parties, with regard to the opinion of the world. Besides, had she objected to it, she should either have been a restraint on Lady Greystock, or left to total solitude, and the idea also stole upon her mind that she should lose a chance of seeing Lord Mortimer, whom she supposed a frequent guest of the Marquis's. Her heart fluttered at the idea of soon beholding him, and the bright glow of animation which overspread her countenance in consequence of this idea attracted the observation of Lady Greystock, who congratulated her on the alteration that was already visible in her looks, and inferred from thence that she was so well recovered of her fatigue as to be able to contrive a little trimming for her against the next day. This Amanda cheerfully undertook, and having a quick execution as well as an elegant taste, soon made progress in it which delighted her ladyship, who, to divert her while she worked, related some of the many entertaining anecdotes with which her memory was stored. Though Amanda submitted her beautiful hair to the hands of a friseur, she departed not from the elegant simplicity always conspicuous in her dress. Her little ornaments were all arranged with taste, and an anxious wish of appearing to advantage. So lovely, indeed, did she appear to Lady Greystock, that her ladyship began seriously to fear she should not be forgiven by the Marchioness or Lady Euphrasia for having introduced such an object to their parties. About six they reached Portman Square, and found a large party assembled in the drawing-room. After the first compliments were over, and Amanda introduced the Marquis, not, indeed, as a near relation, but an utter stranger, a gentleman stepped up to the Marchioness, and addressing her in a low voice, was immediately presented by her to Amanda as the Earl of Cherbury. "'My dear young lady,' said he, "'allow me to express the pleasure I feel at seeing the daughter of my worthy friend, Mr. Fitzalan. Allow me also to increase that pleasure,' continued he, taking her hand and leading her to a very lovely girl who sat at some distance, by presenting Miss Fitzalan to Lady Araminta Dormer, and desiring their friendship for each other.' Surprised, confused, yet delighted by notice so little expected, the heart of Amanda heaved with emotion. Her cheeks mantled with blushes, and the tear of sensibility trembled in her eye. She was not, however, so embarrassed as to be incapable of expressing her acknowledgments to his lordship for his attention, and also to assure him she had early been taught, and sensibly felt, the claims he had upon her gratitude and respect. He bowed, as if to prevent a further mention of obligations, and left her seated by his daughter, who had expressed her pleasure at being introduced to her, not in the supercilious style of Lady Euphrasia, but in the sweet accents of affability and tenderness. The conduct of Lord Cherbury had drawn all eyes upon Amanda, and the Marchioness and Lady Euphrasia regarded her with peculiar malignancy. The idea, however, that they could, whenever they pleased, deprive her of his notice, a little lessened the jealousy and mortification it had excited. "'Pray, who is this little creature?' exclaimed Miss Malcolm, who was a relation of the Marquise, and, from being extremely ugly, extremely rich, and extremely ill-natured, was an immense favourite of Lady Euphrasia's, that puts one in mind of a country miss on her first appearance at a country assembly, blushing and trembling at every eye she meets. "'Some kind of a far-off relation of my mother's,' replied Lady Euphrasia, whom that old dowager, Lady Greystock, picked up in the wilds of Ireland and has absolutely forced upon her notice, though I assure you, from compassion, we should have taken the poor creature long ago under our protection, but for the shocking conduct of her family to the Marchioness, and the symptoms she has already betrayed of following their example. It is really ridiculous sending her to London.' I dare say her silly old father has exhausted all his ways and means in trying to render her decent, comforting himself, no doubt, with the hope of her entrapping some young fool of quality, who may supply his wants as well as hers. Aye, I suppose all the stock in the farm was sold to dress her out, cried young Freelove, a little trifling fop, who leaned on the back of her ladyship's chair. 
He was a ward of Lord Cherbury, and his fortune considerable, but nature had not been quite as bounteous to him as the blind goddess. Both his mind and person were effeminate to a degree of insignificance. All he aimed at was, being a man of fashion. His manners, like his dress, were therefore regulated by it, and he never attempted to approve of anything or any creature till assured they were quite the ton. He had danced attendance for some time on Lady Euphrasia, and she had encouraged his assiduities in hopes of effecting a change in Lord Mortimer's manner. But had his lordship even been a passionate lover, poor free love was not calculated to inspire him with jealousy. "'I declare,' continued he, surveying Amanda through an opera-glass which dangled from his buttonhole, "'if her father has nothing to support him but the hope of her making a conquest of importance, he will be in a sad way, for, upon my soul, I can see nothing the girl has to recommend her except novelty, and that, you know, is a charm which will lessen every day.' All she can possibly expect is an establishment for a few months with some tasteless being who may like the simplicity of her country look. "'And more than she merits,' exclaimed Miss Malcolm. "'I have no patience with such creatures forcing themselves into society quite above them.' "'I assure you,' said Lady Euphrasia, "'you would be astonished at her vanity and conceit, if you knew her. She considers herself a first-rate beauty, though positively any one may see she is quite the reverse, and pretends to the greatest gentleness and simplicity.' Then she has made some strange kind of people, to be sure they must be, believe she is accomplished, though I dare say if she can read tolerably and scrawl out a decent letter, tis the utmost she can do. We will quiz her after dinner about her accomplishments, said Freelove, and have a little fun with her. I do, cried Miss Malcolm. We will ask her to play and sing, said her ladyship, for I assure you she pretends to excel in both, though from her father's poverty I am certain she can know little of either. I shall enjoy her confusion of all things when her ignorance is detected." Whilst this conversation was passing, Amanda, in conversing with Lady Araminta, experienced the purest pleasure. Her ladyship was the softened image of Lord Mortimer. Her voice was modulated to the same harmony as his, and Amanda gazed and listened with rapture. On her confusion abating, her eye had wandered round the room in quest of his lordship, but he was not in it. At every stir near the door her heart fluttered at the idea of seeing him, nor was this idea relinquished till summoned to dinner. She fortunately procured a seat next to Lady Araminta, which prevented her thinking the time spent at dinner tedious. In the evening the rooms were crowded with company, but Lord Mortimer appeared not among the brilliant assembly. Yet the pang of disappointment was softened to Amanda by his absence, intimating that he was not anxious for the society of Lady Euphrasia. True, business or a prior engagement might have prevented his coming, but she, as is natural, fixed on the idea most flattering to herself. Lady Euphrasia, in pursuance of the plan laid against Amanda, led the way to the music-room, attended by a large party. As Freelove had intimated to some of the bow and bells, her ladyship and he were going to quiz an ignorant Irish country girl. Lady Euphrasia sat down next to the harpsichord, that she might have a better pretext for asking Amanda to play. Freelove seated himself by the latter, and began a conversation which, he thought, would effectually embarrass her, but it had quite a contrary effect, rendering him so extremely ridiculous as to excite a universal laugh at his expense. Amanda soon perceived his intention in addressing her, and also that Lady Euphrasia and Miss Malcolm were privy to it, having caught the significant looks which passed among them. Though tremblingly alive to every feeling of modesty, she had too much sense, and real nobleness of soul, to allow the illiberal sallies of impertinence to divest her of composure. "'Have you seen any of the curiosities of London, my dear?' exclaimed Freelove, lolling back in his chair and contemplating the luster of his buckles, unconscious of the ridicule he excited. "'I think I have,' said Amanda, somewhat archly and glancing at him, "'quite an original in its kind.' Her look, as well as the emphasis on her words, excited another laugh at his expense, which threw him into a momentary confusion. "'I think,' said he, as he recovered from it, "'the monument and the tower would be prodigious fine sights to you, and I make it a particular request that I may be included in your party whenever you visit them, particularly the last place.' "'And why,' replied Amanda, "'should I take the trouble of visiting wild beasts, when every day I may see animals equally strange, and not half so mischievous?' 
Freelove, insensible as he was, could not mistake the meaning of Amanda's words, and he left her with a mortified air, being, to use his own phrase, completely done up. Lady Euphrasia, now rising from the harpsichord, requested Amanda to take her place at it, saying, with an ironical air, her performance, which indeed was shocking, would make hers appear to amazing advantage. Diffident of her own abilities, Amanda begged to be excused, but when Miss Malcolm, with an earnestness even oppressive, joined her entreaties to Lady Euphrasia's, she could no longer refuse. "'I suppose,' said her ladyship, following her to the instrument, "'these songs, presenting her some trifling ones, will answer you better than the Italian music before you?' Amanda made no reply, but turned over the leaves of the book to a lesson much more difficult than Lady Euphrasia had played. Her touch, at first, was tremulous and weak, but she was too susceptible of the powers of harmony not soon to be inspired by it, and gradually her style became so masterly and elegant as to excite universal admiration, except in the bosoms of those who had hoped to place her in a ludicrous situation. Their invidious scheme, instead of depressing, had only served to render excellence conspicuous, and that mortification they destined for another fell upon themselves. When the lesson was concluded, some gentlemen who either were or pretended to be musical connoisseurs entreated her to sing. She chose a plaintive Italian air, and the exquisite taste and sweetness with which she sung, equally astonished and delighted. Nor was admiration confined to the accomplishments she displayed. The soft expression of her countenance, which seemed accordant to the harmonious sounds that issued from her lips, was viewed with pleasure and praised with energy, and she rose from the harpsichord covered with blushes from the applause which stole around her. The gentlemen gathered around Lady Euphrasia to inquire who the beautiful stranger was, and she gave them pretty much the same account she had already done to Miss Malcolm. The rage and disappointment of that young lady and her ladyship could scarcely be concealed. "'I declare, I never knew anything so monstrously absurd,' exclaimed Lady Euphrasia, "'as to let a girl in her situation learn such things, except, indeed, it was to qualify her for a governess or an opera-singer.' "'Aye, I suppose,' said Miss Malcolm, "'we shall soon hear her quavering away at one of the theatres, for no person of fashion would really interest our children to so confident a creature.' The fair object of their disquietude gladly accompanied Lady Araminta into another room. Several gentlemen followed, and crowded about her chair, offering that adulation which they were accustomed to find acceptable at the Shrine of Beauty. To Amanda, however, it was irksome, not only from its absurd extravagance, but as it interrupted her conversation with Lady Araminta. The Marchioness, however, who critically watched her motions, soon relieved her from the troublesome assiduities of the bow by placing them at card-tables. Not, indeed, from any good-natured motive, but she could not bear that Amanda should have so much attention paid her, and flattered herself she would be vexed by losing it. In the course of conversation, Lady Araminta mentioned Ireland. She had a faint remembrance of Castle Carberry, she said, and had been half-tempted to accompany the Marquis and his family in their late excursion. Her brother, she added, had almost made her promise to visit the castle with him the ensuing summer. "'You have seen Lord Mortimer, to be sure,' continued her ladyship. "'Yes, madam,' faltered Amanda, while her face was overspread with a crimson hue. Her ladyship was too penetrating not to perceive her confusion, and it gave rise to a conjecture of something more than a slight acquaintance being between his lordship and Amanda.' The melancholy he had betrayed on his return from Ireland had excited the raillery of her ladyship, till convinced, by the discomposure he showed whenever she attempted to inquire into the occasion of it, that it proceeded from a source truly interesting to his feelings. She knew of the alliance her father had projected for him with the Roslyn family, a project she never approved of, for Lady Euphrasia was truly disagreeable to her, and a soul like Mortimer's, tender, liberal, and sincere, she knew could never experience the smallest degree of happiness with a being so uncongenial in every respect as was Lady Euphrasia to him. She loved her brother with the truest tenderness, and secretly believed he was attached in Ireland. She wished to gain his confidence, yet would not solicit it, because she knew she had it not in her power essentially to serve him. Her arguments, she was convinced, would have little weight with Lord Cherbury, who had often expressed to her his anxiety for a connection with the Roslyn family. With the loveliness of Amanda's person, with the elegance of her manner, she was immediately charmed. 
As she conversed with her, esteem was added to admiration, and she believed that Mortimer would not have omitted mentioning to her the beautiful daughter of his father's agent, had he not feared betraying too much emotion at her name. She appeared to Lady Araminta just the kind of woman he would adore, just the being that would answer all the ideas of perfection, romantic ideas, she had called them, which he had declared necessary to captivate his heart. Lady Araminta already felt for her unspeakable tenderness. In the softness of her looks, in the sweetness of her voice, there were resistless charms, and she felt that if oppressed by sorrow, Amanda Fitzalan, above all beings, was the one she would select to give her consolation. The confusion she betrayed at the mention of Mortimer made her ladyship suspect she was the cause of his dejection. She involuntarily fastened her eyes upon her face, as if to penetrate the recesses of her heart, yet with a tenderness which seemed to say she would pity the secret she might then discover. Lord Cherbury, at this moment of embarrassment to Amanda, approached. He said he had just been making a request and an apology to Lady Greystock, and was now come to repeat them to her. The former was to meet the Marquis's family at his house the next day at dinner, and the latter was to excuse so unceremonious an invitation which he had been induced to make on Lady Araminta's account, who was obliged to leave town the day after the next, and had, therefore, no time for the usual etiquette of visiting. Amanda bowed. This invitation was more pleasing than one of more form would have been. It seemed to indicate friendship and a desire to have the intimacy between her and his daughter cultivated. It gave her also a hope of seeing Lord Mortimer. All these suggestions inspired her with uncommon animation, and she entered into a lively conversation with Lord Cherbury, who had infinite vivacity in his look and manner. Lady Araminta observed the attention he paid her with pleasure. A preposition in her favour, she trusted, might produce pleasing consequences. Lady Greystock at length rose to depart. Amanda received an affectionate adieu from Lady Araminta, and Lord Cherbury attended the ladies to their carriage. On driving off, Lady Greystock observed what a charming, polite man his lordship was, and, in short, threw out such hints, and entered into such a warm eulogism on his merits, that Amanda began to think he would not find it very difficult to prevail on her ladyship to enter once more the Temple of Hymen. Amanda retired to her chamber in a state of greater happiness than for a long period before she had experienced. But it was a happiness which rather agitated than soothed the feelings, particularly hers, which were so susceptible of every impression that they turned at the touch of joy or woe, and turning trembled too. Her present happiness was the offspring of hope, and therefore peculiarly liable to disappointment, a hope derived from the attention of Lord Cherbury and the tenderness of Lady Araminta, that the fond wishes of her heart might yet be realized, wishes again believed from hearing of Lord Mortimer's dejection, which his sister had touched upon, and from his absenting himself from the Marquis, which were not uncongenial to those he himself entertained. She sat down to acquaint her father with the particulars of the day she had passed, for her chief consolation in her absence from him was in the idea of writing and hearing constantly. Her writing finished, she sat by the fire meditating on the interview she expected would take place on the ensuing day, till the hoarse voice of the watchman proclaiming past three o'clock roused her from her reverie. She smiled at the abstraction of her thoughts, and retired to bed to dream of felicity. So calm were her slumbers, so delightful her dreams, that Soul had long shot his timorous ray into her chamber ere she awoke. Her spirits still continued serene and animated. On descending to the drawing-room, she found Lady Greystock just entering it. After breakfast, they went out in her ladyship's carriage to different parts of the town. All was new to Amanda, who, during her former residence in it, had been entirely confined to lodgings in a retired street. She wondered at, and was amused by, the crowds continually passing and repassing. About four they returned to dress. Amanda began the labours of the toilet with a beating heart, nor were its quick pulsations decreased on entering Lady Greystock's carriage, which in a few minutes conveyed her to Lord Cherbury's house in St. James Square. She followed her ladyship with tottering steps, and the first object she saw on entering the drawing-room was Mortimer standing near the door. End of chapter 24, part 2